It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Before we get to this week's episode, I wanted to let you know that this podcast miniseries is a companion to my new book, The Queen, The Forgotten Life Behind an American Myth. It's available wherever you buy books. And now, on to the show. Previously on The Queen, the Chicago Tribune was the first paper to report on Linda Taylor, whom the newspaper called the welfare queen. I was excited because it it was a big story, the kind of story that uh, most any reporter uh, would want to get, you know, I mean, it was not just welfare fraud, it was bizarre fraud. Taylor's story was picked up by Ronald Reagan, who used it to advocate for shrinking the welfare system. She has three new cars, a full-length mink coat, and her take is estimated at a million dollars. Reagan exaggerated how much Linda Taylor stole, but that didn't matter very much. The welfare queen stereotype took hold, while Taylor herself was quickly forgotten. As far as I know, Linda Taylor talked on camera just one time. It's February 1976, and Taylor is hurrying to her car after a court hearing. She's wearing a black fur coat and a sun-shaped rhinestone brooch. A member of the press shouts some questions. Did you talk to us? How'd you do it, Linda? Well, compared to some of you white people, I think I've done pretty damn good to be black. That a girl. Well, compared to some of you white people... I think I'd done pretty damn good to be black. I don't know what was going through Taylor's head in that moment. It's very striking, though, that she flips a question about her performance in court into a statement about the color of her skin. She's unapologetic about who she is, and she frames her story as one of triumph over a racist society. Beyond that, Taylor mostly declined to speak for herself. After her welfare fraud trial, she vanished from the news entirely. It took me about a year of making phone calls and sifting through court records to find out that she had died in 2002. Taylor never gave a full accounting of what she'd done or why she'd done it. That meant she was defined by other people. In the mid-1970s, there were competing visions of who Linda Taylor was and what she represented. On one side was Ronald Reagan, who portrayed her as a brazen thief and a symbol of a rotten public aid system. On the other were Taylor's lawyers, who argued that the rhetoric around her was dangerous, that it was an invitation to criminalize poor black people. Linda Taylor's trial came down to what seemed like a simple question. Was she a menace or was she a scapegoat? The answer would dictate whether Taylor went free. It would also help determine the future of aid to the poor and of the millions of people who received it. This is the queen, a show about the woman behind the welfare queen myth. I'm Josh Levine. Episode 2, An Incredible Con. R. Eugene Pincham was the most popular lawyer on the south side of Chicago. The waiting room at his office was full until 1 a.m. some nights, 
packed with black men and women in desperate need of legal representation. He took on clients who'd been accused of petty crimes. He also represented accused murderers. And in 1974, he agreed to defend the woman known as the Welfare Queen. Pincham was extraordinarily good at his job. Throughout his career, he won cases that were supposed to be unwinnable. Five years before he met Linda Taylor, he defended six black men who were accused of arson during the riots after Martin Luther King's assassination. All six of them were acquitted by an all-white jury. Young lawyers, especially young black lawyers, would go to Chicago's criminal courts building to watch Pincham in action. When you heard Pincham speak, there was something about his voice. It was this, I don't want to say baritone, but there was this resonance in his voice. This is Isaiah Gant. People call him Skip. In the 1970s, he became Pincham's protege. You went to see this closing argument. You knew, you knew it was going to be breathtaking. And it always was. To get Linda Taylor acquitted, Pincham would need to be at his best. Because the facts of the case, they didn't look great. Taylor had been charged with signing up for welfare using multiple names. The police had solid proof. They'd found her signature on checks made out to Connie Walker, Linda Bennett, and Sandra Brownlee. Public sentiment was also against Taylor. She had been touted as the biggest welfare cheat of all time. But Pincham thought this case was about something more significant than a handful of checks. Here he is in an oral history interview in 2007. I take on those cases that have some sociological or impact, political impact on the community, where the, 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 the abuse is so egregious until somebody else come forward. The egregious abuse here, as Pincham saw it, wasn't Linda Taylor's abuse of welfare programs. It was the abuse perpetrated by a justice system that made poverty a criminal offense. Before the trial, Pincham told the Chicago Tribune it would be a pretty sorry situation if the state tried to prosecute and send to jail everybody from the South Side that took welfare money they didn't have coming. There'd just be nowhere to put them. There was a lot of truth to what Pincham was saying. Aid to families with dependent children, the country's biggest welfare program, didn't provide enough benefits to alleviate poverty. At the same time, aid recipients could be prosecuted for failing to declare income they earned from working. That meant many people on welfare were faced with an impossible choice. Here's historian Jalili Kohler-Hausman. She's the author of the book Getting Tough, Welfare and Imprisonment in 1970s America. On the ground, the practice of actually arresting and booking people for welfare fraud was the crime of having a job. So what's so amazing is the very politics that was instrumental in constructing a population as lazy, shifty, refusing to work, non-productive, is, is actually arresting people for basically doing two jobs, which is often wage labor and all the parenting labor that we know welfare was actually supposed to be supporting. R. Eugene Pincham argued that, in the grand scheme of things, what Linda Taylor did was irrelevant, because prosecuting people for welfare fraud was itself immoral. At the same time, Pincham used his institutional know-how to work the system in Linda Taylor's favor. That mostly meant grinding the legal process to a halt by requesting continuance after continuance. Taylor was indicted in 1974. She wouldn't go on trial until 1977. 
Pincham hoped that these tactics would cool the case down, that a long delay would make people forget how much they hated Linda Taylor. But Pincham hadn't known that Taylor would become a campaign issue. In 1976, Ronald Reagan got people angry about her all over again. The other consequence of Pincham's stalling was that he stalled himself out of the case. Two years in, Pincham was elected to a circuit court judgeship, and a pair of junior associates took over Taylor's defense. One of them was the 29-year-old Skip Gant. Gant wasn't optimistic about his chances to win in court. But the more he heard Reagan talk on the campaign trail, the more Gant believed that he wasn't just representing a single client. She was being painted as this big-time crook, and she was indicative of all black females who were on welfare. And my mother was on welfare. And my mother was nowhere close to being anything like Linda Taylor. That pissed me off. Gant needed to remind himself about the big picture, because the woman he was representing was an enormous pain. Most defendants understood the value of appearing demure in court. But Linda Taylor wouldn't stop wearing fur coats. Trying to get her to look like a school marm was just not going to work. Couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. She was just bent on being flamboyant. There was a part of her that I recall where she was really, she needed to be able to thumb her nose at society. She needed to be like in their face. There was this need to be defiant. Taylor was on trial for being a scammer, and Skip Gant felt like one of her marks. One time, she told him that she was staying at a particular hotel. When Gant sent an investigator to check it out, they found an empty lot. She was an incredible con. You're, you're sitting there and you're looking at her straight in the face, and you're rolling your eyes back in your head going, yeah, okay, right, okay. No, there was nothing that she could she would say that you could believe. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Until he was in his 50s, Ronald Reagan was known mostly as a B-grade movie actor. His political breakthrough came in 1964 when he made a televised speech on behalf of Republican presidential nominee Barry Goldwater. In that address... Reagan talked about the virtues of small government and individual freedom. He also argued that anti-poverty programs encouraged lawbreaking and bred dependency. Not too long ago, a judge called me here in Los Angeles. He told me that a young woman who'd come before him for a divorce. She had six children, was pregnant with her seventh. Under his questioning, she revealed her husband was a laborer earning $250 a month. She wanted the divorce to get an $80 raise. She's eligible for $330 a month in the Aid to Dependent Children program. She got the idea from two women in her neighborhood who'd already done that very thing. Goldwater lost that 1964 election, but Reagan became a rising star. In 1966, he was elected governor of California. Once in office, he made welfare reform one of his top priorities. 
welfare spending had grown nationwide in the 1950s and 60s. Mass migration from the South to more generous Northern states, the rise of the welfare rights movement, and a series of Supreme Court rulings all meant that lots of poor people, particularly poor Black women, started receiving aid money for the first time. That aid money helped alleviate poverty. It also strained state budgets. Reagan promised that he could solve the welfare spending crisis without harming the truly needy. Here's Jalili Kohler-Hausman again. He claimed that the reason that the welfare roles were expanding so much was because the roles had been inundated with cheaters. There were many factors in his welfare reform proposal, but one of the key parts was that he wanted to, quote, prune the roles, that he needed to thin them out by getting rid of all of the people that he claimed were there fraudulently, illegitimately. As governor, Reagan tightened welfare eligibility rules and reduced grants for those with outside income. These moves became a model for other states and the federal government, and they made Reagan a conservative hero. When Reagan ran for president in 1976, he cited these reforms as an example of his policy expertise. But John Sears, who managed Reagan's 1976 campaign, says the candidate was never all that concerned with how welfare worked. To him, politics was uh, more a matter of connecting with the people on a more personal basis. I mean, he uh, was not one to want to get to the bottom of issues or anything. They weren't the important thing to Reagan. It was making the connection. When Reagan talked about Linda Taylor, voters heard him loud and clear. In this clip from a campaign rally in January 1976, you can hear a collective gasp when he talks about the scope of Taylor's fraud. In Chicago, they found a woman who holds the record. She used 80 names, 30 addresses, 15 telephone numbers to collect food stamps, Social Security, veterans' benefits for four non-existent deceased veterans' husbands, as well as welfare. Her tax-free cash income alone has been running $150,000 a year. The anecdote spoke to voters' prejudices, and it inflamed their fear and their outrage. Welfare becomes an explanation for a whole host of frustrations that are happening economically. People are frustrated because not only do they feel like they're paying more taxes, but they feel like they're paying more taxes for people that they feel do not deserve it, that are not legitimate rights-bearing citizens. Reagan wasn't always scrupulous about the facts. He said that Taylor had stolen $150,000 or more, but she'd officially been charged with the theft of less than 9000 The prosecutor in her case said, you have to go with what you can prove. Reagan's standard of proof was a lot lower. And while Reagan never mentioned Linda Taylor's race, he stood accused of using coded racist language during his campaign. In addition to telling the Taylor story, Reagan talked about a so-called strapping young buck who bought T-bone steaks with food stamps. The New York Times described this as an indirect racial appeal, one that might attract supporters of the segregationist Alabama governor, George Wallace. Kohler Hausman says the indirectness of Reagan's welfare talk helps explain why it was effective. It's a way of channeling anxiety and frustration and rage against the changes that it that had happened in the 60s and 70s um, around racial hierarchy. Um, it's a way of channeling that politically without explicitly talking about race. 
John Sears denies that Reagan used race in an underhanded way to try to win elections. Sears also says that if Reagan did deploy racist tropes, he didn't realize what he was doing. I think it was more naivete than, uh, uh, you know, anything else. Uh, He was a very naive man in some ways. Sears says that he was never a fan of Reagan's repeated references to Linda Taylor and that he urged Reagan to quit mentioning the woman in Chicago. I thought it was demeaning to people on welfare, and so I thought it was a very bad thing to be saying. As the 76 campaign rolled on, Reagan did cut down on how often he mentioned Taylor. But he couldn't bring himself to stop using the anecdote entirely. The Linda Taylor story helped him connect with a huge swath of American voters, and he didn't want to risk losing that connection. On the first day of Linda Taylor's welfare fraud trial, Skip Gant walked into the Daily Center in downtown Chicago, feeling like a massive underdog. The entire courtroom courthouse was just permeated with, this woman is going to be found guilty. As he delivered his opening statement on March 4th, 1977, Gant was hoping he could find just one juror who'd vote to acquit. He wasn't trying to convince anyone that Linda Taylor had never committed welfare fraud. He was trying to get the jury to look past it. Gant said, This welfare queen syndrome was an effort of the state of Illinois and Department of Public Aid to cover up their own frailties. Linda Taylor, he explained, was the fall guy. Gant framed the case as a monumental battle between the government and its citizens. But when the proceedings began, the stakes seemed to get a lot smaller. Given all the hoopla, you would have thought that there would have been more of a clashing of swords and that kind of thing, but it was not. It was, it was rather dry because it was basically a document case. It's all about the paperwork here. The prosecution's star witness was an FBI handwriting expert. That expert testified that Linda Taylor's known handwriting matched the signatures on a series of fraudulently obtained welfare checks. Skip Gant's mentor, R. Eugene Pincham, had thought this case was about something bigger than a handful of checks. The jury disagreed. The so-called welfare queen of Chicago has been convicted of fraud and perjury. Linda Taylor was found guilty on all counts. The Chicago Defender, the city's black newspaper, was the only publication to mention that three-quarters of the jurors were white. The Defender wrote that while Taylor was guilty as hell, the jurors had their minds made up before they started to deliberate. After the verdict came down, the prosecutor, Jim Piper, said that it would serve as a deterrent. And in what may or may not have been a slip of the tongue, Piper appeared to refer to welfare itself as fraud. This jury's verdict will have very good ramifications, and I think other people who want to get on fraud or, on, or you know, are on fraud now will get off so they don't get convicted. Piper would be rewarded for his successful prosecution of Linda Taylor. In the late 70s, he was put in charge of a dedicated welfare fraud unit. With that unit in place, fraud prosecutions in Illinois skyrocketed. In 1970, the number of welfare fraud cases forwarded to law enforcement was 240. By 1979, that number was almost 2,000. Piper told the Tribune, I think the welfare queen Linda Taylor brought about a change in thinking. Millions each year are being stolen, and we decided to do something about it. For Piper, Linda Taylor wasn't an outlier. She was a symbol of a massive problem. Ronald Reagan felt the same way. 
During his first year as president, Reagan got Congress to sign off on major cuts to the two biggest direct aid programs for the poor, food stamps and aid to families with dependent children. In a meeting with newspaper editors, Reagan explained that his public aid cuts would help eliminate fraud and abuse. He said, We think there's much more of it than anyone realizes, as was evidenced in Chicago with the welfare queen. When it came time for Linda Taylor to be sentenced, Skip Gant reminded the judge that Richard Nixon hadn't even gotten probation for his role in Watergate. That was not a winning argument. Taylor was sentenced to three to seven years in state prison. After Taylor got put behind bars, everyone stopped caring about who she really was and what other crime she might have committed. The real Linda Taylor just disappeared. The only version of her left was the welfare queen. Gant, who's now a federal public defender in Nashville, Tennessee, says he has some regrets about how he handled the Taylor case, given her behavior before and during the trial, and what he's learned about her upbringing. Maybe we should have had her examined before trial, because clearly, in a very, very young age, this young lady's brain, brain, was damaged, flawed. Back in the 1970s, Taylor's lawyers didn't know about her early life. Her family history was buried in a sealed court file. In the next episode of The Queen, you'll hear about the case that held the secrets of her past and that helped explain why Linda Taylor became Linda Taylor. She resisted every effort to provide us with any real information about her but I ultimately found out who she really was. This episode of The Queen was written by me, Josh Levine, and produced by Emma Morgenstern. Editorial direction from Lowen Liu and Gabriel Roth. Merritt Jacob mixed this episode. You can subscribe to The Queen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now. It would also be great if you could rate and review the show. It helps other people find it. And you can email us at thequeen@slate.com. This podcast series is a companion to my book, which is called The Queen, The Forgotten Life Behind an American Myth. You can order it now. It's on sale everywhere on May 21st. Special thanks to June Thomas, Melissa Kaplan, Danielle Hewitt, Asha Saluja, Vicki Gann, TJ Raphael, Lisa Larson-Walker, Katie Rayford, Jessica Seidman, Leonard Roberge, Aliyah Hannah-Habib, Vanessa Mobley, Alyssa Persons, Sabrina Callahan, Pamela Brown, and the team at Little Brown and Hachette Book Group U.S. The audio of Ronald Reagan was provided courtesy of the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute. Additional audio provided by NBC Universal Archives and The History Makers, the nation's largest African-American video oral history archive. Thanks for listening.